1: Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Pontiac, Michigan. Founded in 1818, Pontiac was the second European American organized settlement in Michigan and the first settlement that was not located next to a body of water. It was named after a war chief of the Ottawa tribe who occupied the area before the European settlers. Pontiac was incorporated as a city more than 40 years later in 1861 and in the early 20th century was best known for its General Motors automobile manufacturing plants. The industry was the basis of the city's economy and contributed to the wealth of the region. In fact, one of the world's most popular automobiles bears the name Pontiac. For those of you who are fans of the 70s and 80s, it was the Pontiac Trans Am. The restructuring of the American auto industry that began in the 1980s contributed to a decline in the city's population due to the loss of well-paying jobs. The city has created a number of initiatives aimed at redevelopment of the downtown area and bringing jobs back to the city, but still struggles to return to its former glory. However, in 2022, all eyes were on the city when a horrific crime that occurred 27 years prior was in the headlines again, This time, for all the right reasons. On
2: July 11, 1995, 21-year-old Jeremy Wilkes went to his childhood home to check on his 43-year-old mother, Margaret Midkiff. Although it was just hours after the birth of his first child, he had not spoken with his mother in three days, and since she lived alone, he was concerned. When he got to his mother's house, he first went to the house next door to talk to the De Jesus brothers. He and 21 year old Melvin and 18 year old George De Jesus were close in age and grew up playing with each other as kids and then hanging out together as they got older. The brothers still lived in their family home. Melvin De Jesus was at home, so he joined Jeremy when he went to check on his mom. When Jeremy entered, he called out, but there was no response from his mother. He knew she was in the house because her car was out front. So he and Melvin went through the house thinking his mom probably had just not heard them. As they walked down the stairs to the basement, they saw her body on the floor. She was naked with a blood-soaked pillowcase covering her head. Her hands and feet were bound with a telephone cord. The Pontiac Police Department responded to Jeremy Wilkes' 911 call investigators found his mother's clothes upstairs on her bedroom floor. And although it looked like the assailant had rifled through her drawers, it did not appear that any money or valuables were taken. Almost two weeks later, Pontiac Police Lieutenant Ryan Peters said the medical examiner determined that Ms. Midkiff had been killed on Saturday, July 8th, 1995, the last time Jeremy had actually spoken with her and that she had been raped and stomped to death. Although the Pontiac police conducted some interviews and initially collected some evidence related to Ms. Midkiff's murder, the investigation was soon turned over to the Oakland County Sheriff's Homicide Task Force, where it was assigned to the Special Investigations Unit.
1: Investigators quickly identified the DeJesus brothers and their friend, 23-year-old Brandon Gohagen, as suspects in Margaret Midkiff's death. Gohagen was a lifelong friend of the De Jesuses and Jeremy Wilkes. Melvin and George each had previous convictions for receiving stolen property and were members of the Los Capones street gang to which Gohagen and Jeremy also belonged. Also, despite their friendship with Jeremy Kath, the De Jesus brothers were in a long ongoing feud with Ms. Midkiff. According to Angela Rodriguez, who was Miss Midkiff's daughter and Jeremy's sister, her mother had threatened to report the De Jesuses to the police because she believed they were selling drugs out of their home. On November 9, 1995, almost five months after Margaret Midkiff was murdered, police executed a search warrant and took blood, hair, DNA, and saliva samples from Melvin and George De Jesus, Brandon Gohagen, and another man, Kevin Harvey. In addition, police took their shoes to look for trace evidence from the crime scene. The DNA samples were sent to a lab for testing. Ten months later, in September 1996, results were finally provided to the police. The lab report stated that Gohagen was identified as a contributor to a sperm sample obtained from Ms. Midkiff. The other men, Melvin and George DeJesus and Kevin Harvey, were eliminated as contributors. So, Kath, Kevin Harvey was obviously a person of interest. I mean, his DNA was taken and everything. Right. But nowhere was it explained how he might have been connected. I couldn't find it either. Other than the fact that he was a gang member with them. Right. Police issued an arrest warrant for Gohagan on September 19th, 1996. This is a little over a year after Margaret Midkiff was murdered mm-hmm. and arrested him a few days later in Phoenix.
2: <laughs> uh, as or, I started... Or otherwise known as Florida.
1: <laughs> oh, Phoenix, Florida. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm usually the one who makes those fanatic mistakes.
1: <laughs> Gohagen had fled to Florida, if I need to be technical, <laughs> with a friend named Terrell Golston. Almost one week after Gohagen was arrested, September 26, 1996 ish, when investigators laid out the evidence against him during an interview, Gohagen made admissions to the police. He said he raped Ms. Midkiff, but only because the De Jesus brothers forced him to. And then the De Jesus brothers kicked her to death. Due to the DNA evidence, Gohagen was arrested for the rape and was put in jail awaiting trial.
2: Police interviewed 21-year-old Melvin that same day. He denied any involvement with the crime. He said he was with his girlfriend at a party on Saturday night, the night of the murder, and that they spent the night together at his house. Police interviewed his 15-year-old girlfriend the next day. She confirmed that she and Melvin were together on the night of the murder. Investigators told her that because of her age, Melvin could be charged with statutory rape, and she could be charged with perjury if she were trying to protect Melvin by lying about where he had been on the night of the murder. She stood by her story. After speaking with Melvin, the investigators also interviewed 18-year-old George like his brother, he denied any involvement in Ms. Midkiff's assault or death. George said that he was with Hagen for part of the day, and then he went to the same party as his brother on Saturday night. At this point, now more than a year after Ms. Midkiff's murder, when these people are being interviewed, detectives suspected Melvin and George of the murder, but they did not have any witnesses or physical evidence to link them to the crime.
1: Now, Kath, that changed a little more than two years after Margaret Midkiff was murdered. While Gohagen was awaiting trial for the charge of raping Margaret Midkiff, he began talking with prosecutors. He agreed to plead guilty to second degree murder in exchange for testifying against the De Jesus brothers. In doing so, Gohagen avoided a possible sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Detective Sergeant William Harvey told Gohagen he needed to pass a polygraph test in order to get the plea deal. A polygraph was administered by Chester Romatowski, a retired law enforcement officer who started his own firm called Romatowski Consulting and Investigations. After the polygraph, prosecutors were informed that Gohagen passed. On July 22, 1997, Brandon Gohagan signed an agreement with prosecutors which allowed him to provide information about the crime while limiting the extent to which it could be used as evidence against him. Police arrested Melvin de Jesus that same day at the Oakland Medical Center in Pontiac. Kath, he was at the hospital with his girlfriend, who had gone into labor, and he was arrested before his child could be born.
2: Was this the same girlfriend? Do you have any idea? I don't. Mm. If it was, she was 17 at the time. I'm going to assume it was. We don't know. True love. <laughs> yeah. True love. That's right. True love. <laughs> when you're 15, it's always true love.
1: <laughs> you raise a very fine point. <laughs> Melvin's brother George was already in prison, serving a two- to four-year sentence on a weapons conviction. Both men were charged with criminal sexual conduct and murder. At a preliminary hearing on September 4, 1997, Angela Rodriguez, Ms. Midkiff's daughter, said she could not believe the brothers did what they did to her mother. They grew up together and played together, and Angela was furious and shocked that they raped and killed her mother.
2: Melvin and George Jesus were tried together in Oakland County Circuit Court. The trial began on December 1st, 1997. At trial, Angela Rodriguez, Ms. Midkiff's daughter, testified that her mother had issues with Melvin and that her mother had threatened to call the police on the brothers because she believed they were selling drugs out of their house. By the way, I could totally relate to Ms. Midkiff's frustration because I had a neighbor who was absolutely selling drugs out of the house. Yeah, she's um she's a lovely human being.
1: I think everybody struggles with neighbors that they have problems with. But when it comes to the illegal activity, and especially you have a lot of kids in your neighborhood. Yeah, there's a bunch. Shockingly, they don't all belong to you. Right.
2: <laughs> exactly. Not all I mine. I think only
1: like 25 of them do. <laughs>
2: But yeah, when things got really bad, when she was desperate for money, she let people live in her backyard under tarps. That's crazy. And so finally, it was code enforcement who came out and said, this has got to stop.
1: Is that the equivalent of like getting Capone on tax evasion? Right.
2: Seriously, <laughs> that's yeah. honestly, I was like, yay, victory. Yeah. But anyway. At trial, Angela Rodriguez also said that her mother tried to keep Jeremy, her brother, from hanging out with the De Jesus brothers because they were bad news.
1: Do you think that means that Miss Midkiff was unaware that her son Jeremy was a member of the gang with the other guys? You know, I have no
2: idea. I can't imagine that she didn't know. However,
1: it also could have been that it seems like maybe he was turning his life around. He didn't live with his mother like the De Jesus's did. Right. And he just had his first baby. Exactly. So I yeah, I don't know.
2: Judge Robert Templin granted a defense motion to ban the prosecution from presenting any evidence about the de Jesus' membership in the gang or any gang-related activities. But when Jeremy took the stand after his sister, he testified that he saw the brothers almost every day. He said he did not associate with them because they were in a gang and pretty much getting into trouble. After Jeremy made the statement, the defense immediately moved for a mistrial, but Judge Templin denied the request. An autopsy determined that Ms. Midkiff had been raped and sodomized and suffered a skull fracture and brain hemorrhaging from repeated kicks to her head. The cause of death was blunt force trauma and it was soon determined that Ms. Midkiff had been dead for three days when her son found her. Melvin Jesus filed a motion to have an independent forensic examination of Midkiff's body conducted, but Judge Templin denied the request.
1: Detective Sergeant William Harvey with the Oakland County Sheriff's Department testified that after he received the case file, which included crime scene photos, he became convinced that there was more than one assailant. In his testimony, Sergeant Harvey said he believed it would have been difficult for a single person to control Ms. Midkiff and tie her up. He testified that the photographs indicated that the blows Ms. Midkiff received came from multiple angles and locations, indicating more than one attacker. Under cross examination, he admitted that while it was possible for Gohagen to have carried Midkiff into the basement himself, logic suggested that wasn't the case. Two witnesses for the state testified they saw George de Jesus with scratches in the days after Ms. Midkiff's death. They could not agree on whether the scratches were on his face or his arms. One of these witnesses, Jamie Martin, also testified under cross-examination that Ms. Midkiff and the De Jesus brothers hated each other. Terrell Golston, the man who Gohagen fled to Florida with to avoid being arrested. Otherwise known as Phoenix. Exactly. <laughs> testified that he did not know there was a warrant for Gohagen's arrest when they left Michigan for Florida in September of 1995, about two months after Margaret Midkiff's death. Golston testified after they were arrested, Gohagen told him that he had been with Melvin and George de Jesus on the night Ms. Midkiff was killed and described what had taken place. The defense objected to this as hearsay evidence, but Judge Templin said it was admissible as a prior consistent statement. Golston's version of Gohagen's account of what happened that night did not match with Gohagen's testimony in several places. Golston said Gohagen told him that Ms. Midkiff was already naked when he arrived at her house, that he left her house after having sex with her only to return and find Melvin kicking her and that Gohagen did not have any weapons with him at any time.
2: Detective Ron Curry of the Pontiac Police Department testified that he interviewed Melvin in September of 1996, so more than a year after Margaret Midkiff's murder and right after Gohagan made the admissions to the police. Detective Curry said that when he interviewed Melvin, Melvin was unaware of the fact that Gohagen had already made a statement to the police. Detective Curry also testified that Melvin told the detective he had spent the entire evening of the murder with his brother and Gohagen and could provide an alibi for Gohagen as well. Detective Curry testified that Melvin's demeanor changed completely after he was told that Gohagen had confessed and implicated Melvin and his brother George. Now Melvin began trying to distance himself from Gohagen. Detective Curry testified that he kept no notes from the interview, but typed his report shortly after the interview ended. He also testified that he did not put Melvin's alibi in the report and that he was not sure whether the interview was recorded. Neither brother testified at trial. There was no physical or forensic evidence connecting either of the De Jesus brothers with the crime. Technicians had only found 28 fingerprints at the crime scene. Only eight of them were usable. Of the usable ones, only three could be identified. Two were from the victim's son, Jeremy Wilkes, and the other belonged to Ms. Midkiff.
1: Now, Kath, unsurprisingly, Brandon Gohagen was the prosecution's star witness. As we said, under the terms of his agreement, he had to testify against his lifelong friends. In court, Gohagen testified that the night of the murder, he was hanging out with Melvin and George at their house, drinking beer and smoking marijuana. Melvin mentioned to Gohagen that he did not like Ms. Midkiff and that he was going to go over to her house to mess with her. Gohagan testified that a few minutes later, he and George heard Melvin whistle for them, so they went over to Ms. Midkiff's house and found Melvin standing in her doorway. They went into the master bedroom and pulled Ms. Midkiff out of bed. Melvin then ordered him to take off her clothes and have sex with her. Gohagan testified that both he and Melvin were carrying handguns and that he gave his gun to George prior to raping Midkiff. Over the objection of the defense, Gohagan identified the gun from a photograph taken two years prior in 1995 of George de Jesus holding two guns.
2: Now, Kath, the defense was freaking out and objecting to this, which was overruled by the judge, as you said, because it was a picture of George with two guns in his hand, and he's pointing both guns at the cameraman. And so it's a really intimidating picture. Well, and how do you see the side of the gun? I don't know. Gohagan testified that he was forced to rape Ms. Midkiff, and then George and Melvin bound her feet and hands with a cord. George dragged her down to the basement, with Melvin following behind. Gohagan waited for a few minutes, then went into the basement, where he saw Ms. Midkiff tied up and on her knees. He said Melvin pushed her over, cursed at her, and began kicking her in the head. George joined in, and they kept at it for several minutes. Gohagan testified that Miss Midkiff told them to just leave and that she would not tell anyone, and Melvin replied, I know you won't. Gohagan then ran out of the house and drove away. Under cross-examination, Gohagan said that he had not agreed to any sentencing deal prior to his plea arrangement. He also acknowledged previous convictions for theft and being a felon in possession of a weapon. The defense called three witnesses. One testified that she was at a party with George in the early morning hours of July 9, 1995, the night of the murder, and saw no scratches or cuts on his body. Another woman testified that she had been previously sexually assaulted by Gohagen after they stopped dating. She testified that she saw Hagen with a scratch on his neck about the time of Ms. Midkiff's death. A third woman who said she had sex with Gohagen on the night of the murder also said he had a scratch on his neck. Over the objection of the defense counsel, prosecutor Donna Pendergast used large photos of the crime scene and of Ms. Midkiff in her opening statement. And she returned to those photos in her closing argument in which she referred to Melvin and George De Jesus as brutal and savage murderers. Also during closing argument, prosecutor Pendergast pointed out that the coroner who conducted Margaret Mitkiff's autopsy had taken fingernail clippings. A forensic scientist found traces of blood on the nail clippings, and this person testified at trial that the amount of blood was insufficient to test. Despite the lack of testing, the prosecutor used this evidence in her closing argument to suggest that the blood under Ms. Midkiff's fingernails belonged to George de Jesus because he was the one who reportedly had scratches. This was how she tied George to the crime scene.
1: After two hours of deliberations, on December 11, 1997, the jury convicted Melvin and George De Jesus of first-degree murder, first-degree felony murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct, and three counts of the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. Kath, immediately after the verdict was announced, Jeremy Wilkes, Ms. Midkiff's son, stood up and yelled, justice, to the Jesus brothers as they were being led out of the courtroom. Kath, I read this outburst sparked what was termed a profanity-laden exchange between the DeJesuses and Ms. Midkiff's friends and relatives who were in the courtroom. Let's now discuss what terms we think they may have used. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I bet you anything they said. (laughs) Almost three weeks later, Judge Robert Templin sentenced Melvin and George DeJesus, now 23 and 20 respectively, to the mandatory term of life in prison. Kath Brandon Gohagan was sentenced later, and he received 35 to 80 years in prison. The first time he'd be eligible for parole is 2031. So that
2: means he was going to have to spend 34 years in prison before being eligible for parole. Correct. Bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone. And so do you.
1: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
2: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
1: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
2: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today
1: Both brothers appealed, arguing that Judge Templin had erred on numerous fronts. They requested that the Court of Appeals order evidentiary hearings to determine whether the defendants were denied effective assistance of counsel for failure to raise and properly investigate an alibi defense, and whether the prosecutor violated Brady v. Maryland, a U.S. Supreme Court case that requires the prosecution to give all exculpatory evidence to the defense. George De Jesus's defense attorney also contradicted George's statements to the police and the alibi he provided. Kath, the attorney, misstated the evidence during his closing argument and said George did not have an alibi which he did. Right. And said George was not even sure where he was on the night of the murder. Right?
2: Can you imagine George sitting at counsel no. table and enclosing arguments where you're supposed to put
1: all of the facts in the law together? It's like your last shot at getting your case across.
2: 100%. And this clown gets up and says, yeah, my client doesn't know where he was. He doesn't remember. <laughs> I mean,
1: what? <laughs> and he has no alibi. In the appeal, they also requested an evidentiary hearing to determine whether the police intimidation of Melvin's 15-year-old girlfriend denied him due process. Now, other allegations, Kathy, that they put in their appeal were the failure of the prosecution to provide videotapes and transcripts of police interviews of Melvin and his girlfriend, who was his alibi witness, taken when they were interviewed a year after Margaret Midkiff's murder.
2: The appeal also alleged that the prosecutor improperly and intentionally elicited testimony from a witness that Ms. Midkiff had alerted the police to the De Jesus' drug sales and that they were in a gang, and that Ms. Midkiff had banned the De Jesus brothers from her home. On appeal, they also challenged the state's use of large photos of George holding the two guns. The appeal said that the prosecutor committed misconduct in her closing arguments when she overreached in describing Ms. Midkiff's final minutes of life and when she called the De Jesus brothers sadistic executioners, among many other inflammatory comments.
1: Like when she called them brutal and savage
2: murderers? Exactly. But there were a lot more statements that were rather over the top. Right. They also took issue with the fact that they used a ton of crime scene photos over and over and over. And the defense was saying, look, this was prejudicial and unnecessary and duplicative, you know, all those kind of things. The bottom line is on June 18, 1999, the Michigan Court of Appeals affirmed the convictions and declined to order any evidentiary hearings for the De Jesus brothers. The appellate court did, however, amend each of their convictions, removing the felony murder and criminal sexual conduct charges. And the court basically said look, this is a murder case. The appropriate conviction is not two counts of murder one for first degree and one for felony murder, but rather one count of first degree murder supported by two theories, premeditation and the felony murder rule, meaning there was a killing in the commission of a felony. However, it didn't matter because their life sentences remained in place. In 2002, after multiple unsuccessful appeals and 15 years after they were sent to prison, each brother filed a request to test the trace blood samples from Ms. Midkiff's fingernails, which they said would show that Gohagen was the murderer. The brothers also asked for an evidentiary hearing on a post-conviction report produced by Dr. Warner Spitz, a forensic pathologist brought in by defense counsel who examined the autopsy report and concluded that Margaret Midkiff was not repeatedly kicked, but rather died from a single stomp to the head. These motions were denied in 2002. The judge who rejected these requests said that even if Gohagen's DNA was found in the blood sample, it would not disprove the state's theory of the case. The judge also said that Dr. Spitz's report only went to the credibility of the state's evidence and would not exclude the misparticipants in the crime.
1: Fast forward to 2016. This is now 21 years after Margaret Midkiff was murdered and 19 years after the De Jesus brothers were convicted and sent to prison for that crime. In the city of Pontiac, Cath, retired homicide detectives actually volunteered to investigate cold cases.
2: I love that they volunteered. I do too. Yeah, I think I that's mean, awesome. Yeah, some cities actually pay retired guys to come back and work part-time to do this.
1: In 2016, the retired detectives began reinvestigating the rape and murder of a 22-year-old woman named Rosalia Brantley, who was killed on August 29, 1994. This is just 11 months before Margaret Midkiff. Cold case detectives discovered well-preserved evidence from Ms. Brantley's murder and submitted it for DNA analysis. It came back with a match to a man currently in prison. Brandon Gohagan. The rapes and murders of Margaret Midkiff and Rosalia Brantley were similar. Ms. Brantley was also raped, bound, and beaten like Ms. Midkiff, but Ms. Brantley was also stabbed. Now, this evidence breathed new life into Melvin and George de Jesus' claims that they were innocent.
2: Exactly. If Gohagan had committed crimes like this before, there's now an understanding that he has this proclivity to do so and to act alone. Right. Nobody forced him to rape Ms. Brantley.
1: And I still have a hard time believing that police officers believed that he was forced to rape somebody's mother. Right. To take her clothes off and rape her. Like, right. No. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, there are other things he could have said that might have convinced them, what have you. But I don't know. I just I kind of called BS on that. Yeah. So now as a result of this DNA match, Gohagan was actually tried and convicted in 2017 for the first degree murder and rape in Rosalia Brantley's death. He was sentenced to life in prison. Kath, when I read her name, I,
2: of course, started doing research on her murder, which was horrible. Right. Basically, she went out with friends to a bar. There was a shooting outside and she and her friends all ran and got separated. And she winds up walking to a friend's home to spend the night. And this was somebody that she wasn't planning on staying with. In the middle of the night, she gets a page and her friend says, deal with it in the morning. You don't have to go. And she's like, no, I got to go. So the next day they find her body in a field and she was totally brutalized. And the saddest part is when I was doing the research for this, I saw an interview of her son who was three years old at the time. Now he's a grown man. And as a grown man, he basically said, I missed my mother my whole life. I suffered so much as a child. Like, and it just broke my yeah. heart. He was three. And he said that he believed this day would never come when they found his mother's murder. Well,
1: yeah, so much time had passed. Exactly.
2: And so he was very happy for the news, but you could still tell, like, he just was so devastated. It
1: doesn't change anything nope. for him. Exactly. After Gohagen was tried and convicted in 2017 for Rosalia Brantley's death, Melvin and George de Jesus got the attention of two different law schools in Michigan. One was the Western Michigan University Cooley Law School. The other was the University of Michigan Law School. They began examining Gohagen's activities around the time of Margaret Midkiff's murder. Specifically,
2: Western Michigan had an Innocence Project, and the University of Michigan Law School had what they called an Innocence Clinic. And I read that the Innocence Clinic was exclusively related to investigating improper convictions and seeking exonerations in non-DNA related cases. So that's pretty cool.
1: That is cool. And I would imagine nowadays that's actually much harder too.
2: Oh, 100%. And I believe the Innocence Projects primarily look to DNA as the exculpatory factor. So basically, the Innocence Clinic has to do a hell of a lot of examination and investigation when they take on these cases. But my understanding was that one of the schools represented Melvin and one of the schools represented George.
1: Correct. The Cooley Law School team at Western Michigan University represented George De Jesus, and the University of Michigan Innocence Clinic team represented Melvin De Jesus. According to the two groups' project investigators, they discovered. 12 other women who were emotionally, physically and sexually abused by gohagen and had found additional DNA evidence that supported some of these claims. Now, Kath, I read that, but I didn't see anything
2: more specific. I did not either. OK, so you don't
1: know that if he's being charged with something else. Right. Correct. I do not know that. OK. Now, two years later, Kath, in 2019, the Michigan Attorney General's office established a statewide Conviction Integrity Unit that was tasked with preventing, identifying, and remedying false convictions. After the Conviction Integrity Unit was launched, the Cooley Innocence Project and the Michigan Innocence Clinic asked the unit to conduct DNA testing and review both of the brothers' claims of innocence. Following a nearly three-year investigation by the CIU, CIU being the conviction integrity unit, they believed the brothers had been wrongly convicted. CIU investigators spoke to a witness who said that Gohagen confessed to implicating the brothers in exchange for a deal. They also located witness statements taken shortly after Ms. Midkiff's murder that corroborated the De Jesus brothers' alibis the night of the 1995 murder. Based on this investigation, the Michigan Attorney General's office agreed to vacate the convictions of Melvin and George, and stipulations to that effect were filed on March 22, 2022, so about nine months ago. Both sides noted Brandon Gohagen's conviction for Rosalia Brantley's murder and his pattern of assaults of other women around the same period in which Ms. Brantley and Ms. Midkiff were murdered. It was also revealed that investigators had found two new witnesses who corroborated George de Jesus' alibi for Saturday, July 8, 1995, the night of the murder. In addition, the motion to vacate the convictions said that Gohagen had taken a polygraph test in 1997 as part of his agreement, and the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office had been told that Gohagen had answered truthfully. Upon review of the actual polygraph, which was never provided to the prosecutor, meaning it was also then never provided to the defense. Right. Like the actual polygraph chart itself. It was determined that at best, the polygraph was inconclusive, but at worst, he lied.
2: At the March 2022 hearing before Judge Martha Anderson of the Oakland County Circuit Court, Robin Frankel, the head of the Attorney General's Conviction Integrity Unit, said, On behalf of the state of Michigan, I offer you our deepest apologies for all the years that have been taken from you. We'd like to change what happened, but we can't. On March 22, 2022, Judge Anderson granted the defendant's motion to set aside the convictions. The Oakland County Prosecutor's Office dismissed all charges and, 25 years after being wrongfully convicted, Melvin and George de Jesus were released from prison later that day. Now, the records were also expunged, and I know this because Kathy and I tried finding them online. Yes. And then calling the clerk of the court in Michigan. Well,
1: calling the clerk of the judge in Michigan. Yeah. And then, and Lo- then calling the clerk of the judge again. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Lots of phone calls to Michigan to find out that the records were actually expunged. So at that hearing in March of 2022, now 45 years old, George De Jesus said, I'm thankful that the truth is finally realized. I realize that justice for us opens up old wounds for the Midkiff family. I just hope one day our families can all heal and we can have a relationship. Margaret Midkiff's family monitored the hearing but made no statements. And by the way, Kath, this was done on Zoom. Melvin, now 48, told the Midkiffs, I hold no animosity. I've known you guys since I was eight years old. You guys are like my second family. I hope and pray one day we will have open lines of communication.
1: I wonder if the Midkiff family, one, can do that after so long. And two, I wonder if they believe it's actually true.
2: I know. Because that would be hard. I don't hard. know. Honestly, I didn't see any quotes from them in newspapers or anything. So I, I do not either. I don't know.
1: I'm just wondering as a person if like you'd want to be able to forgive, but I don't know that you can.
2: And also somebody who's been convicted, you tend to believe they're guilty of right. things, you know, so. There was a
1: reason that you got yourself in that situation. Right. So, Kath, I don't think you saw this, but at a press conference following the De Jesus Brothers release from jail, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel was asked by the press what her office had learned by this case. I thought of you the whole time she was speaking because what she said was, and this is a quote, there's a lot we've learned. First of all, one of the things I can say for sure is using jailhouse snitches is a recipe for disaster. Boom. And then she should have just dropped the mic, but she didn't. Yes. So she said when you see that, meaning somebody using a jailhouse snitch, which Go Hagen was considered to be. Correct. That's what she's talking about. Yeah. Automatically a light should go off that there is something wrong when you have cases that are built on virtually nothing but that. After A.G. Nessel said this, Robin Frankel, who, as you mentioned, was the head of the CIU, pointed out that the case against the De Jesus was built around one person who prosecutors had proof was involved in the attack. Mm hmm. The only physical evidence at the scene belonged to their star witness. Mm -hmm. And yet police built a case around him. And Kath, A.G. Nessel didn't mention Gohagen by name, but she was referring to him because, remember, they pulled him out of Florida to bring him back because his DNA was found on the victim. Right.
2: He was charged with rape before anyone was charged with murder. So he was singing from a jail cell. Exactly.
1: Now, Kathy, the other thing that happened at the press conference that I do have to admit, I might have had tears fall from my eyes. Mm -hmm. Melvin and George were held in separate correctional facilities. They had not seen each other in 24 years. They saw each other at the press conference for the first time. Oh, wow. So they were there. Their mom was there. Their dad was there. And remember, we talked about Melvin de Jesus being arrested in the hospital when he was awaiting the birth of his first child. Mm hmm. It was a little girl who's now 25 years old. So not so little anymore. She's obviously an adult, right? She also was at this press conference. So I bet they were all like bawling. Yeah, totally. It was their family. And it was something that they mentioned over and over that got them through. Mm -hmm. So George de Jesus said, I just want to thank God first, because without him, nothing is possible. I am thankful that the truth is finally realized and hope that our family, as well as Margaret's family, can finally heal and put all this behind us. I realize that justice for my brother and I also means opening up old wounds for the victim's family. My heart goes out to them and I will be praying for them. Melvin DeJesus said, for me and my brother, that's one of the things we always fought for. We never lost any doubt one day we would be free. So for Dana Nessel, referring to the Michigan Attorney General, and the team doing everything they did in getting us freedom, it's incredible. Three months later, in June of 2022, each brother was awarded just over $1.2 million in state compensation. Recently, the state of Michigan enacted a statute that provides $50,000 for each year of wrongful conviction.
2: On November 29, 2022, two weeks prior to this recording, Melvin and George filed a federal civil rights lawsuit requesting $125 million in damages. And, Calf, it doesn't mean they're going to get 125. It's just the numbers that you put in your lawsuit. That's right. all. According to the Detroit Free Press, the brothers said the $125 million they are seeking is not enough. Neither is an apology, although one would be nice. Melvin said the money is nothing compared to what we lost. We want to know why. Why us? The day Jesus brothers announced the federal lawsuit at their attorney, Wolf Mueller's office. The lawsuit, which is against Oakland County, former Oakland County Sheriff Sergeant William Harvey and former police officer Chester Romatowski. Kath, Romatowski was the one who performed the polygraph on Brandon Gohagen and reported the results as being truthful. So although he never gave the polygraph chart to the prosecutor, he's like, yeah, 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 he passed. Well, of course he
1: hadn't. And Kath, I believe that Detective Sergeant Harvey was the lead investigator in Margaret Midkiff's murder. Yes, that's why he was listed in the lawsuit. Now, I want to point out, these are
2: only allegations in the lawsuit. And the reason I wanted so badly to actually get the court records is because I wanted to read the motion to set aside the conviction. And I wanted to read the stipulations entered into by the attorney general's office, because that's where the golden evidence is, so to speak. But because they were expunged as a result of him being exonerated? We'll never know. We will never know what they say. I'm sure that his attorney has them, but we don't. So the complaint filed in federal court basically alleges that the De Jesus brothers had their Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights violated, their due process rights, their right to uh, be free from unreasonable searches and seizures and loss of liberty and things like that. And the lawsuit is based on federal statutes that prevent civil rights violations under color of law. And color of law simply means anyone who appears to be doing a legal duty, like, for example, a judge, a police officer. And these federal statutes basically say in their apparent duty, they exceeded the scope of their authority. I'm totally paraphrasing, but that's basically what it is. The allegations in the complaint state that Sergeant Harvey and Chester Romatowski, who goes by Chet, conspired to fabricate the results of the polygraph test, even though they knew that it showed Gohagan was deceptive. And again, these are just allegations.
1: She's going to say this every other sentence. I promise you, I, I will take all of them out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it reads like it's a book, but we just don't know. Right. You no, know, I, I agree 100% with what you're saying and understand. And it's just annoying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt that. So it also alleges that Go Hagen got a sweetheart deal and was able to falsely testify against the De Jesus brothers. The report also alleges that Sergeant Harvey was aware that there were two female alibi witnesses who supported the De Jesus' alibi being at a party on the night of the murder. So, Kath, here's what happened. Within a very short time after the murder, Melvin's girlfriend and another woman told an investigator that they were with the De Jesus brothers at a party. So what happens is this investigator takes notes and in the notes, each of the women specifically stated that the party was on Saturday night and that the brothers were with them. It was unequivocal alibi witnesses. These two gals were not interviewed for another year, at which point they say, I can't remember if the party was Friday or Saturday. So when they go to trial, you know, nearly a full two years after the event, they are cross-examined. You don't know whether it was Friday. You don't know whether it was Saturday. Isn't it true? Blah, 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 blah. And the prosecutor basically eats them alive. Now, the prosecutor was never given the initial interviewer's notes wherein they accurately identify the night of the murder and being with the brothers. And as a consequence, the defense attorney was never given the initial investigator's notes. So the defense attorney had no ability to cross-examine the police and say, isn't it true when they were interviewed within days of the murder, they knew the correct night? Isn't it true that there was no conflict? Isn't it true? Blah, 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 blah. So anyway, that's part of the lawsuit as well. Those allegations that they were improperly denied due process rights and the prosecution and police officers withheld pertinent information.
1: Another allegation in the lawsuit. And let me be clear, this is just an allegation. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. was that the county failed to properly train their officers, which led to policies within the department that created deliberate indifference to the constitutional rights of its citizens.
2: Exactly. That's the deep pockets of the lawsuit, right? So right. The, so the county is named. And of course, the brother's attorney is like, we're expecting the county to pay out.
1: Right. The other two individuals who are named are private individuals who are retired from their jobs. Exactly. A statement from Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard's office noted that no one involved in the case still works there. Their quote said, obviously, this case goes back more than 25 years preceding Sheriff Bouchard's tenure. More facts will need to be gathered because none of the people involved still work here. So as we mentioned, the defense was never given the actual polygraph chart from Gohagan's polygraph exam. But remember, as a result, the prosecution was never given it either. The Jesús's new attorney, Wolf Mueller, said that he was recently able to obtain them via subpoena and said he had an expert in polygraph examination and a former Michigan State police officer review the charts. Attorney Mueller said that the experts he had looked at it concluded that the polygraph charts screamed out at you that Gohagen was being deceitful and it was not even a close call.
2: The De Jesus convictions were the third and fourth to be overturned through the Michigan Attorney General's Conviction Integrity Unit. Now free men, the brothers want to move on from the pain and loss of that wrongful conviction. For 25 years, it was the support and love from their family that sustained them, but prison was mentally and physically draining. They said deciding to file the lawsuit was a difficult decision as the litigation will force them and the Midkiff's family to relive the tragedy. But without answers, it's been hard for the brothers to move on. Thanksgiving was the first major holiday they spent with family in 25 years. George was quoted as saying, I knew a lot was taken from me, but I didn't realize how much. And Kath, I can't imagine. So many things have changed in 25 years just in the world, let alone their own experience. Melvin began to cry as he spoke of his struggles, mainly not being able to raise his daughter while in prison. And he says, quote, I spent all these years trying to have a relationship with my daughter. I was never, ever able to hold her out in the free world. For a father, that's one of the greatest things and joy that you can have is to hold your daughter, to be there while she's being born. George encapsulates the emotions of the brothers perfectly when he says, It was hard. You can lose faith that it's not going to happen, but we always fought hard. Just when we'd feel that momentum was going down, my mother made us promise that we would never give up no matter what happens.
1: Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. Follow us on Instagram
2: or hit us up on Facebook. Thank you so much for being a listener.